Chapter 7 Like Anything Was Possible As a custom touch for the community, the casings of our streetlights are shaped like clouds. Late evening, and Miri stands beneath the one ending our block. She's pointing her hands in odd directions, a thoughtful look on her face. The bulb is loose. Stacks of dead insects pile blackly into the cloud's bottom. The plastic is heat-stained yellow. Flickering on and off, light leaks through the dark bodies like miniature lightning strikes, making a tiny storm above us. There's also a weird buzzing sound I wish would shut up. Miri's using her right hand as a divining rod, aiming her pointer finger at the street and changing trajectory in slight corrections. So the sun would have to be here, she calculates. Her left arm aims at the moon. Squinting like someone queuing up for a tricky pool shot, she follows the line of sight, considering factors, readjusting as required. And the sunlight is hitting us right here. She glances down again, then back up. And our curvature throws some of the light, so... It really is very similar to a tricky pool shot. Miri's lining up spheres. My head doesn't work this way, and I can never seem to picture it right. She's locating the sun by the shadow on the moon's surface, envisioning the resting place of our planet between the two. Another of her little quirks. It's a game Miri's played since we were kids. You see? She's inviting my attention into the sky alongside hers, you can still see the whole thing if you really look. It never goes away completely. It only seems to. Mary's describing the portion of the moon that appears to be missing. The part covered by our planet's shadow was a slightly different shade of dark than the night sky in which it hangs. Barely. But if I look hard enough, the whole circle is there. Isn't that cool? With the other two resting by her sides... Miri's goddess arm reaches up. Curving her fingers, she makes a frame around the moon and peers through it. The flickering buzz of the streetlight throws an unattractive effect on the scene. For whatever reason, I don't want Miri under it anymore. Little stargazer, I say. Come, come now, let's walk. I step away, resuming the course of our stroll. Another moment with the moon and Miri turns to join me, sliding her arm through mine. A whole entire world stealing all of your light away. Miri's voice is accented by genuine pity for the poor, poor moon. I tell her how impressed I am with the philosophical depth she's displaying this evening, the sexiness of such abstract humanitarianism. She smiles, pushes her body into mine, and tells me to shut up. I do, and we continue our walk. The community at night is a strange aesthetic to move through. Hurricane houses stretch in rows down either side of each block like strings of sleepy spiders with bulbs on their bellies. Different shades of light, whites to dimmed orange hues, glow from the base of each, falling down onto parked cars and varying geometries of junk. Every home, a flat-bottomed dome on curved stilts, has windows cut out in the same places. 
Different rooms within the homes glow on or off, shining through open windows or pulled curtains. This, combined with the lumen effect glowing or not glowing from the base of each, turns one block and then the next into something resembling a graveyard for decommissioned UFOs. A very bland otherworldliness. Recently, though, in speckled contrast to such blandness, my sister has taken it upon herself to paint over some of the streetlights. Pinks, blues, pastels, and loud reds sink down to the street like happy tractor beams from the painted clouds. Stencils and opaque designs are added to some, turning the weird puddles of light into something mosaic. Miri thinks it's cool. I think C is going to get herself in trouble again. Our standard walking route takes Miri and me past a number of predictable landmarks. We pass the home of Lord Rectus. He's a shut-in these days. Closed curtains, sad yard. A couple of the older artists live on the next block over. Rival clans to ours, or at least Grandpa made it feel that way. Prose poetry isn't poetry, he always said. It's prose, and usually horrible prose. Their clan lacks talent, no taste. None of that ever mattered much to me, though. Then there's Dell's place. Now in his early 20s, Dell still lives with his parents. His dad's red V8 hot rod is parked in the driveway. As always, freshly polished and pristine. Dell isn't allowed to touch it, never has been. V8s aren't for twerps. His dad still says this kind of stuff to Dell in front of his friends. Dell's dad is a real piece of shit. Miri and I pause at the edge of the driveway. A hot pink street lamp shines down above us. The car looks exactly the same as it has every day for the last 20 years. Remembering something Dell used to say, I smile to myself. Top down, twins sitting shoddy. I start. Mary smiles and continues the quote. She remembers it too. Pedal to the floor, hatchet in the back. We close it out together. That's the fast life. Sharing a laugh, we allow our minds a few moments of space to follow our friend's echo back to its source. Top down, twins sitting shoddy. Fast cars and the myths of warrior god Biclops. Dell was always reading, but those were his only two subjects of interest. Pedal to the floor, hatchet in the back. Two large picture books, one on each of these topics, lay open in front of Dell. Big green bear to the left, bright red car to the right. He was sitting in the library before school. Sammy's roller bed parked beside him. Congregating here was a habit that our group developed early on in public school. We discovered that it was where the regular kids were least to be found, and the ones that did hang out in the library weren't so much assholes. That's the fast life. Dell said this kind of stuff with such funny seriousness. It was hilarious. More like fag life. Sammy corrected. Whatever, dude. As soon as I entered that morning, Sammy called me over urgently. 
Remy, come here. He was waving his hand, flapping it at the wrist, fanning the air to tell me to proceed in that direction. Del, tell Remy what you just told me. You gotta hear this shit, brah. Sammy was extremely excited about whatever this was. Del, for real. Remy, you gotta hear this. It's so fucked up, it's awesome. I took a seat and Del caved in easy, falling with relish into Sammy's excitement. He leaned forward and spoke low, showing all the signs of a really good secret. Giving a quick and unnecessary glance, left and then right, making sure we were alone, Del whispered, They only have the one. Sammy was already snickering, trying to hold in his laughter. At that point, Miri arrived and sat down at the table with us. She picked up on the importance of our meeting and kept quiet beside me, leaning in as well. I don't get it, I told Del. I was whispering now, too. The twins, he said. They only have the one. Sammy giggled louder. One what? I asked. I didn't understand. One cooter. Dell whispered the information in a tone implying pricelessness, mind-blowingness. They only have the one. They share a cooter. Mary shook her head, got up, and left. I couldn't help but smile. Tell him the rest, Sammy said, his held laughter promising the best was yet to come. I leaned in closer. Del continued. They share it, like for real share it. Like they can pass it back and forth in their minds. Their cooter? I needed to clarify. Their vagina? Yes, dude. Wow. Like when I'm messing with it, they only feel it one at the time. But they trade, like telepathically. They pass the feeling back and forth like an office phone. Line one, line two, switching it up. Dude, it's wild. You're hooking up with the twins? Further clarification was required. This was a lot at once. Been hooking up with the twins? Only just made it to the cooter, though. No empty promise. This was mind-blowing. So when I'm touching on their cooter, they pass the good feeling back and forth between their brains. When Sasha's feeling it, Tasha just watches, like one's just looking at the other while they feel it. Then they switch. And then at the end, when their cooter finally gives it up, gives them that super special feeling, they both get it. Sammy was cracking up. Oh my god, dude. I was absolutely amazed. Dell nodded his head, leaned back, and proudly folded his arms over his chest. So fucked up! So gross, brah! So gross! Sammy could hardly get the words out between laughs. Correct as Sammy was, I remember feeling surprised and jealous that Dell was the first of us to get anywhere with a girl. I'd been carrying Miri's love note around in my pocket for weeks by this point. But on that morning, because of Dell, I felt inspired. Like anything was possible.
I wonder, still standing in front of Dell's place, I turned to Miri. You think Dell and the twins still? She only rolls her eyes. Turning from the driveway, Miri motions behind the fingers of her goddess hand for me to come on. Her palm stays open, waiting for mine to take it. I catch up and wrap my fingers between hers, keeping them there as we continue our stroll. I love holding Miri's third hand, walking with her like that, being touched by it, watching her use it, everything about it. I still catch myself zoning out on the details, often. The seating arrangement in our classroom had my desk right behind Miri's. I would stare for hours. I loved the thought that I knew her, or at least part of her, better than she knew herself. That curves and lines and measurements and textures which she wasn't even able to describe, I had memorized. The graceful way her arm folds out of her sundress. The way the skin at the base, where it meets her back, is somehow perfect. No folds, no creases, just smooth. The way the skin rolls down, dipping just slightly on either side of her spine, then up again into the curve of her shoulder blades. How sometimes I can see a vein traced along its length, the way it looks faded and soft, a barely there blue drifting just beneath her skin, the way her arm hair is almost invisible, a sparse fuzz, like the skin of some sweet fruit, exactly ripe, always. The way her fingers flow in their movement, as if rolling a meditation ball when she's concentrating on something. The quick shadows of her muscles tensing and letting go. The way that the side of it then still is almost enough to make me believe in everything else. How could something so perfect be anything but divine? These were the thoughts moving through my head later that same day in class, unattractively garnished by lingering images of Dell's story and the revitalized encouragement coming in sharp whispers from behind me. I shouldn't have reminded Sammy about the note. Do that shit, brah. His roller bed was parked against the back wall, just behind my desk. Quit being a little bitch. Miri's goddess hand was right there, resting on top of my desk, rolling its fingers one after the next through the air, as if waiting, impatient for me to make my move, asking what was taking me so long. It must be a sign. That's what I told myself. This is a good sign. I slid the note from my pocket. Yes, Sammy whispered. Hell yes, brah, and deposited the folded square between Miri's fingers. No turning back. I held my breath. My pulse pounded like a war drum, and my body became warm. Sammy fell silent. Crickets. Heartbeats. This wasn't the first time we'd exchanged notes. Miri was slick with it. She bent her goddess arm to her shoulder, made like she was brushing her right arm through her hair, retrieved the note, lowered it to her lap, and slowly, one bend, and then another, unfolded it. Here's my true confesh. It's you, boo. Like me back? What's up? I'm feeling you. You feeling me too? <laughs> we'll be soon enough. If you was mine, god damn it, girl, the nasty, freaky shit we'd do, I'd kiss your neck. <laughs>
straight, pet your chest sweat, flex my mess inside of you. I'd lace you up in ice, bling, blazzle, buy you fitting clothes and such, pinky rings and titty tassels, D&G G-string, Gucci clutch. I'm a full-grown man, best recognize. But real men have a soft side, peep. I cried last night, don't tell no one. My secret tears are yours to keep. I dig the way your digits fidget when you think real hard on things. So think real hard on this, young dick. Them digits round my dingling. My style provides such niceties. Sweet love, cold cash, sex dreams come true. So ask yourself how tight it'd be to have a man like me want you. I'm fessin', boo. You like me too? You want me in your world? Say yes. If no, whatevs, yo, coolio. My shit remains on fresh, most deaf. Checkity check yourself. Yes or no. I have no way of knowing what line she made it to before she started laughing. Certainly not far. I folded my arms onto my desk and sank my face in, praying to please disappear. She kept laughing, wide open, no pity at all. I'd never heard Mary laugh so hard. Sammy came alive, his delight amplified and loud. Oh, bro! Oh, bro! <laughs> Bro! This only seemed to encourage Miri, laughing now to the point of gasping. Dell joined in too. My shaming was to be an all-inclusive event. No idea as to what, but Flana was now smiling. The twins were lit up as well. Sia got out of her desk and leaned over Miri's shoulder, reading along with her. Miri couldn't keep her eyes open, she was laughing so hard. She was taking my words slow, like some thick dessert, sweet, tiny bites. I hated Sammy so much. When High Lerner approached Miri's desk with an open hand, requesting to confiscate the culprit item, Miri simply held a finger up, telling him that this was too good, to hold on, just for a second, she wasn't quite finished. And he actually waited. Oh my god, I hated Sammy. She handed the note to High Learner with zero pause in her laughter. His head shook in reproach while reading, but not even our teacher could keep from smiling. My shame was universal. Balling the note up and moving toward the trash can, Iram, he said, my proper name, used only by High Learner and occasionally an upset Miri. Please remain after class. Still face down on my desk, that was just fine with me. And Sammy, you as well, please. Sammy gave a hurt look. How dare you? What? Why me? But couldn't keep from smiling through it. He was very proud of his work. And with the sound of grace come too late, the lunch bell rang. See, had taken her time on this one. 
The cloud of the streetlight in front of High Learner's home is deep turquoise painted around stenciled, star-shaped gaps. Its blue glow and bright angles wash over Miri and me as we pass. Still holding my hand, Miri pauses, looking for a moment at the closed windows of our old teacher's house. I feel like she has something to say, but nothing comes. We keep walking. The next is Miri and Sammy's childhood home. The doctor, their dad, keeps the facade decorated with proud murals of his two divine children, as has always been the case. Are and the serpent god of wisdom look on in brightly colored detail as we pass. No stopping. The Scratch residence follows, stoically bland. The twins' place. A pink sign, Sasha Tasha, hangs cutely from the front door. A long cul-de-sac to our right is uninhabited except for Speaker's home resting lonely, ominous, and unlit at the end. Turning the last corner of our neighborhood route, Miri decides to take a detour typically avoided, approaching the still-vacant, half-burnt home of the Bolbliettes, Flana's family. Sia's selection for the street lamp hovering over this address does not go unnoticed. A black cloud. Intentionally preserved, the home was never demolished. Ten years in decay, it serves as a slowly eroding monument, or warning, reminding everyone of I'm not exactly sure what. Don't eat too much. Don't burn your children. Speaker is the only resident of the community who necessarily has to drive by this house to get to his, and mostly the only one who ever does. The fire ate away only a portion of the domed ceiling, leaving behind a structure reminiscent of an eggshell some baby creature gnawed its way out of and left to rot. The hole is centered above Flana's bedroom. Charred and reclaimed by a decade of nature, everything the fire didn't take is weather-worn and inhabited by lower totems of the food chain. A smoke-blackened mirror and a huddle of stuffed animals decorate Flana's room, where a queen-sized square is seared like a permanent shadow marking the bed she burned in. Taken altogether, it makes for a very eerie museum. Why are we here? I ask. But Miri doesn't acknowledge me. Stepping from the street, she makes her way across the yard. Miri, what are we doing here? Come on, she says. Come with me. My humiliation and Sammy's pride still fresh, he and I arrived late to lunch that day. By the time we got to our table, the pile was already beginning to accumulate in front of Flana. The cafeteria setup was standard seating, long picnic-style tables in which Flana was too fat to fit. So, considerately, the school had a special bench constructed just for her and placed at the end of ours. With assigned seating in the middle of the cafeteria, our segregation was centralized, but Flana's coordinates were even more unfortunate. Her goddess bench blocked the aisle. A tradition, then a couple weeks old, invented by Mac and his friends, was quickly adopted by many more. Toward the end of lunch period, a line would form and slowly snake itself past Flana. The theater was done in cruel parody of the traditional worship offered to goddess Flana during presentations. 
and not infrequently, it was the same kids participating in both versions. Saturdays on stage, goddess Flana, bringer of the bountiful harvest, is worshipped with food offerings. Her collection trough is filled, emptied, refilled, and given then by speaker to the poor, mainly traditionals, hill-dwellers. As the worshippers file past, they recite a quick prayer and deposit their offering. The cafeteria version is fairly similar, variated by tiny annotations tacked onto the prayers. Bless and keep us fed, fat bitch. Bless and keep us fed, you gross whale. Bless and keep us fed, fucking freaks. This day, same as any other, their offerings collected on the table in front of Flana. Scraps and snack cakes, random pieces of meat, dirty napkins, spit, chicken skins, and a medley of unidentifiables. A full menu of leftovers and trash. Peeking out from her hands, looking at us over her pile of food. This sucks, y'all, Flana sighed, and covered her face again. That's the image I still see of her, Mary says, testing the handle of the Bobliette's front door. It opens. I see her looking up at us from behind that pile on that day. She steps inside. I don't think this is safe, I tell her. Mary takes her phone out, turns the light on, and keeps walking. Following behind, I remove my phone and do the same. Really, Miri, I don't think this is safe. Again, no reply. In the foyer is a statue of goddess Flana holding a cornucopia. Above it are two framed documents. Her birth certificate, named for her God's sake, and a copy of the bill Flana's mom worked so hard to get past, the one officially transferring us into the public school system. Miri applies light to it and scans the lines. Celebrating the school day integration of god bodies and divine artists into the population of their worshippers. Miri swipes her finger along the glass, cleaning away two lines of dust into an X across the frame. She aims her light forward again. We make our way to the living room and find everything still there. Animals have torn the couch cushions. There is debris on the floor, and a cake of dirt is spread evenly throughout. Nothing has been moved. The ceiling is dark and smoke-stained, but aside from that, the fire left this part of the house untouched. The hallway leading to Flana's room is decorated with photographs. A young Miri, full makeup and costume, plastic moon in hand, is smiling next to Flana on presentation day. Beside it is a picture of all of us in the front yard on Flana's 13th birthday. An excited Sammy is beaming up at the camera from the end of a slip and slide while Dell strikes a battle pose. You remember that? Miri asks. I tell her, yeah. The door to Flana's bedroom is open. As we enter, starlight takes over and we put our phones away. The ceiling opens above us to a twinkling sky. Looking up to the shadowed moon, I find myself wondering where the sun is now. I can't picture it. Miri steps cautiously, 
estimating the floor's strength. Redundantly, I tell her to be careful. She lifts a wind-up ballerina from Flana's dresser, blows the dust away, and turns the key. Music plays, and the skinny girl spins. Eyes on the figurine, Miri says. She would take all that stuff home with her, you know? Who? I ask. What stuff? All that food. All the stuff those assholes would leave in front of her. She would sneak back to the cafeteria and dig it out of the trash. She would ask to go to the bathroom, then go fill her backpack with all of that trash. Mary sets the ballerina back down on the dresser. A stuffed unicorn sits blackened to the right. She would take it home and eat herself to sleep. I caught her that same day. I snuck over that night to talk to her about you. Remember? She looks at me. The day you gave me that note? I'm still not quite there. Checkity check yourself? It isn't funny anymore. I came over here to tell her I liked you, to talk girl talk, and I caught her trying to hide all that food. I tell Miri that, yes, I remember. We talked for a long time. Hours. We sat on her bed and just talked. Miri's eyes moved to the burn mark where Flana's bed isn't anymore. She asked me if she was a goddess or a fat bitch. I can see emotions waking up in Miri. Intuitively, she senses I'm about to move closer, to touch her or comfort her, and informs me with a tiny motion of her hand to not, that she doesn't need that. I didn't know what to tell her. I think I said something like, what if you're neither? Maybe you're just Flana. Something stupid like that. Meaningless. Miri's eyes find mine. What was I supposed to say? You're just a regular overweight girl? And I'm just a deformed girl with an extra arm? It's okay, Flana. We're not goddesses. We're just freaks. She's looking at me, and I don't have answers. There never was a right thing to say. After Miri left her that night, Flana died in bed. She ate the food Miri wasn't able to find, and her stomach burst. Miri and Sammy's dad, the doctor, pronounced her dead. The entire neighborhood could hear her mom screaming. When Agent Scrotch and some other purpose men arrived to take the body, Mrs. Bolbliette wouldn't let them. She said they couldn't have her baby. And when it became obvious that they were going to come into the house anyway, she completely snapped and set Flana's bed on fire. We were all there. Standing together in the streets, we simply watched. Flana's bedroom window lit orange and flames soaked through the roof. The fire burned and in not long was put out. As soon as the walls and floors cooled down enough, the little that was left of Flana got collected and taken away. At the next presentation, during Goddess Flana's ascension ceremony, the same line of faces from lunch period filed past her bones. Her parents were never heard from again. In bed, Miri cuddles into me quiet. As she falls asleep, 
I lay looking up through our window at the dark moon, feeling grateful and sad to have learned more about my wife. Maybe it's the glass I'm seeing it through, or the angle, but the moon has lost its outline. Something deeper now than a shadow, the light our world steals has left an empty space.